0: So you can know up Colossians 4, chapter, or, uh, chapter 4, 2 through 4, brought a prop with me, got a couple of props. Some of you were wondering what this was. Uh, this is, whoop, there goes a stand, this is a model that my dad built actually. My dad, especially when we were real little, before too many of us kids came along, uh, he loved to make models. So he made model airplanes, he made model boats, this is one of the boats that he made. And he actually built this from scratch. He didn't have a kit that he followed. He had an idea of what he wanted it to look like, but he didn't didn't have a kit. It didn't start that way, though. He would have had to start with kits. When he was in high school and middle school, he's talked about building uh, models, just bought a kit, put it together, and he would have had a blueprint to follow to know exactly what he wanted that to look like. Eventually, he got to the point with the airplanes that he built and with the boats that he made that he no longer needed to follow a blueprint. But he started there. That's where he started. He needed to have a guideline to be able to follow, to be able to build that. Um, For that, it's his own design. Everything else, everything he made by hand, except for the sail, that's the only thing he needed some help with. Somebody sewed that for him. But he followed, followed those blueprints to get him ready then for the work that he was going to do on that boat. Now, Paul's laid out a pattern, a blueprint for this young church. Paul's laid out a pattern for them to follow, and he's he's laid out a pattern for us to follow as well. Now, this church, the Colossian church, didn't actually see Paul in action. They didn't see him personally laying out this pattern, but they saw it in Epaphras. Epaphras was the pastor who first went to them, and they got to see the work of Paul through Epaphras, and then they got to read his writing and hear that pattern we get the benefit of being able to see all of Paul's different letters and see how the pattern that he set and he prescribed for this Colossian church, he carried on and he followed all the way through his writing, all the way through when we see him in Acts, all the way through to the last of his letters. We see him following this same pattern. So it's a blueprint for this Colossian church, but it's for us as well. And for you kids, this is for you too. Like I said before, you're part of this church, whether you're real little, and you're part of the nursery, or you're growing up, and you're not really able to be called a kid anymore, Michael. You're not really a kid anymore, even though I'm still going to see you as a kid for a while, because you're one of my Good News Club kids. Not a kid anymore. All the way through, you have a part to play in this church, so this is for you as well. Paul's laying out this blueprint, this pattern for you also. So let's go ahead and read Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Paul's going to show us how to pray. Here's what he says. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Verse 2 is what we're going to focus on here first. Verse 2, saying, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We need to know how to pray. How do you pray? When you pray and your prayer life is, is examined, what, what would describe your prayer life? Maybe sporadic, um, maybe halting. Maybe that would describe some of us distracted. I know sometimes that describes my prayer life. It's distracted. How about spasmodic? That was a fun word that I learned this week from Alistair Begg, spasmodic. Um, we're gonna, you're going to come out of this sermon and leave this morning and go into your work week tomorrow. Somebody's going to ask you, hey, what did your pastor preach on? And you say, I have no idea, but we learned a new word, spasmodic. And that means you're praying with fits and starts and stops and starts, and you're going and you're not. It's just, it's not consistent. I feel like that's how a lot of us pray. We pray spasmodic. We don't pray consistently. But that doesn't have to be how we pray. We can pray with boldness. We can pray with confidence. We can pray expectantly that God's going to answer our prayers That's how this gentleman prayed. This is George Mueller, very kind-looking gentleman. He prayed expectantly. He prayed confidently. He prayed boldly. We know him as the the man who had orphanages there in England and caring for the poor in the 1800s. He actually did such a good job. He and his wife and the ministry they had through the orphanages of caring for the poor did such a good job. They upset the fabric of the communities where the orphanages were because they were caring for people so well that they were quitting their other jobs to come work for George Mueller in the orphanages because he was paying them so well and caring the for the workers and the kids so well. It's upsetting the fabric of the very area where they were. Now, that, if that isn't a good Christian testimony, I don't know what is. He's caring for people in such a good way that they just wanted to work for him and setting that great testimony. But then we know him as somebody who was a great prayer. And one of the famous stories from the orphanages was one morning, all these orphans and the workers are coming together for breakfast. There were as many as a little over 1,700 at any one time that were part of that orphanage. And here they come to breakfast, and there's nothing there for breakfast. There's nothing to eat. So he has them all sit down, and they start praying. And he's thanking God for their breakfast. There's nothing in front of them but he's thanking God for their breakfast because he's confident in the one that he's praying to. And as he's praying, two things happen simultaneously. The baker shows up at the door and just happens to have enough bread baked for every single person to have breakfast. Just happened to. The milk wagon, at the same time, also just happens to break down right in front of the orphanage. Now, he's only got two options. He can either pour all that milk down the drain or he can give it to the orphanage. Well, he gave it to the orphanage. God provided for their needs just exactly when they needed it. George Mueller and his wife could be praying expectantly, confidently, boldly, because they knew who it was that they were praying to. They knew that God was going to answer their prayers as they prayed for their needs, and it's going to be just exactly the way that God intended it to be. So they could trust They could pray, they could pray steadfastly because they knew who they were praying to and they knew what God was capable of. So that's how Paul is directing this young church to be praying. Pray steadfastly, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. One of the first things we have to note here is that Paul's already set a great pattern for them to follow of what does this look like to pray steadfastly with thanksgiving. Right at the very beginning of this book, Paul's not actually been there with them yet. He sent a letter, and it's Epaphras who has been there, and Epaphras has told them, told Paul and Timothy and those with him in prison, everything that's been going on in this young church. But Paul is praying for them. He says over in verse 3, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Always thank God. He's praying thankfully for this church. He's praying thankfully for each of those believers. He says in verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. He's praying constantly, consistently for this young church. He's not been there to see them yet. And yet he's praying constantly, consistently, faithfully, steadfastly, for this young church. And if he's doing that for them, Paul, Timothy, Epaphras, and the others that are with him in prison, how much more so then should this young church also be praying for Paul and Timothy and Epaphras and the others that are there along with them? So he says to continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. That means if you're continuing in something, you've already started it. They've already started to be praying. They've started to be known as a church that is praying steadfastly. So he says, continue to pray steadfastly. Merriam-Webster describes steadfastly as something as firmly fixed in place. It's immovable. So prayer has become an integral part of who this church is. It's a part of their character. It's a part of their nature. It's an immovable part of who they are. Paul can ask them to be praying and exhort them to continue steadfastly in prayer because it's something they're already doing. It already describes who they are as a church. And we've got to walk that back then for ourselves and say, can that be said of me? Can that be said of me that praying steadfastly is an immovable part of who I am? It's a part of my character. It's a part of my nature that I pray steadfastly. And if you can't say, yes, that's a part of who I am, then you got to ask yourself, why not? Why isn't that yet a part of who I am, an integral part of who I am as a believer? And maybe this isn't something that you confess, just as you think for yourself, you do a little bit of introspection and just look at yourself, your own prayer life. Maybe you don't confess this corporately, But I would really encourage you to find a small group of people. Maybe there's two or three that you confide in that are part of your accountability group and tell them, hey, you know, I really couldn't be, it couldn't be said of me that I pray steadfastly. I want to change that. And I'm not really one for setting uh, New Year's resolutions. I just don't, you know, I might set year goals and things like that, but I don't set New Year's resolutions so much. But this might be a good one to set is that in 2023, You can get to the end of 2023 and say, it can be said of me that I pray steadfastly. And going on from there, not just in 2023, it continues on from there that you pray steadfastly. Imagine what God's going to do in your life and in the life of those around you if that's an immovable part of who you are. You continue steadfastly in prayer. Imagine our church. If our church could be said that it's a church that prays steadfastly. I hope we are. I hope that's an immovable part of who we are, the character and nature of our church. There's some of you that are working very hard to make it that kind of church. I don't know if you all know, but there is a prayer group that meets on Tuesday nights, shameless plug for this. There is a group that meets Tuesday nights at 6.30. Uh, Mark and Ann lead that group. They would love to have any one of you. If you've not yet joined that group, come be a part of that prayer group. It's the perfect sized prayer group because it's just big enough That you can go and be a part of that group, feel like you're part of it, but maybe feel like, you know, maybe I'm uncomfortable praying out loud. You can sit there and you can participate and be a part of it without feeling like you have to pray out loud. And when you do get comfortable to pray out loud, maybe it's a new thing for you, but then you get comfortable saying, you know, I'd like to pray out loud, then it's a group that's small enough that it's still personal. You're still praying for one another. You're still praying for the needs of the church, praying for each other, and you're not just one in a crowd. You're part of that group. Would love to have you come out and join that prayer group on Tuesday nights. I hope that it can be said of Galilee that we are steadfast in prayer, that it's an immovable part of the character and nature of who we are. But prayer's hard. Why is it hard to pray? When we're coming to pray, We're coming into the very throne room of God. We're coming to him. We're talking to him. He speaks to us through his word. We have his word. We can hear his voice through his word. But then we get to talk back to him through prayer. And when we talk back to him through prayer, if we're listening, we hear him speak back to us in those answers to our prayers. None of that's good with the enemy. None of that is cool with the devil. He doesn't want us in God's word. He doesn't want us in prayer. He doesn't want us watching expectantly, waiting with thanksgiving for those answers to our prayers. So prayer is hard. Prayer is hard, hard work. Erwin Lutzer talks about this as he talks about prayer, and he notes that you'll see a pattern when you go to pray. Whenever you go to pray, you're going to sit down, you're going to go to start praying, and all of a sudden, the devil's going to bring up all those things you need to do for like the next 10 years. you have this whole list running through your head of all the stuff you should have done before, all the stuff you need to be doing. So he says, take advantage of that. If the devil's going to do that, take a notebook with you, write down all those things that you should have been doing. So there you can remember it. You've got them all written down, and then you can get to praying. So it's going to backfire. Go ahead and start writing those down and then pray. But prayer is hard. Prayer is hard work. It's a battle. Epaphras, in chapter 4, verse 12, was said to always be struggling, struggling, fighting on their behalf. Constantly, consistently, steadfastly bringing them to the presence of the Lord in his prayers as he prayed not just for this Colossian church... But the Laodicean church as well, when you look at the rest of the book, you see Laodicea popping up in there as well. So this, this letter from Paul was to be read to the Colossian church first and then passed on to Laodicea. So Paul is saying, and, and uh, Paphras is praying, struggling on their behalf daily. It's a part of who he is. It's a part of what he does. It's an immovable part of his character, but it's hard work and all good things Take hard work. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be a struggle. But it's worth it. It's worth the battle to push through it. For me, the two times that I pray uh, most consistently, the most consistent times that I have built into my day are first thing in the morning, I get up, and I, I wake up. The alarm goes off. I turn on the coffee pot, and I go sit down in my big green chair. And I sit down in my chair, and that's where I do my devotions and my prayer time before the girls are waking up. But coffee's not hit my system yet, so I'm not really awake. So it's a battle just to keep my mind focused, to keep it from wandering off into some project I want to work on or wandering off onto something else entirely. It's a battle to stay focused. Even after coffee hits my system, it's still a battle to stay focused, but it's worth the fight. you got to fight the fight to stay focused and to keep in prayer consistently, steadfastly. The other place that prayer happens for me quite often is on my bike. I love to go out and ride my bike, and as I get good fresh air in my lungs and my legs are moving, God will bring people back to my my mind and back to my heart to be praying for. Maybe I haven't seen them in a while. Maybe it's a specific thing I know about someone. God brings that back, and that's when I pray for them. The battle comes and the struggle comes after I get off my bike. Then I have to remember intentionally, I need to keep praying for that person. They'll come to my mind as I ride, but over and over and over again, I'll forget exactly who it was I was praying for. Or I want to think of the thing was that God brought back to my mind, and I'll even pray as I ride, Lord, bring them back later. I want to think of this again later. It's always a struggle, but the struggle is worth the fight. So not only as we're praying are we coming uh, steadfastly, faithfully, consistently into the into, uh, throne of God in prayer. But we're coming with expectant thanksgiving. We're watching for that answer. We're coming expecting and knowing that God's going to answer our prayers. But there's two things we got to remember as we're coming to God, and we're praying, watching with thanksgiving. Two things you need to remember. There's probably a whole lot more, but here's two to get us started. The first is that we don't have to slink into the presence of God. We don't have to just kind of sneak in there and come to God. We can come boldly to him. It's not like Oliver Twist where he's, he's coming up to that guy serving the food and he's saying, please, sir, I want some more, and he's expecting some kind of uh, ridicule and, and uh, you know the story. All of a sudden he gets all kinds of discipline and all of that just for asking for something else. That's nothing like what we have with God the Father. We can come to him boldly, Hebrews tells us, in chapter 4, 14 through 16. We can come boldly before the throne of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. We can come boldly to him. No slinking into God's presence. We can go boldly to him because he's our heavenly father. That's the second thing we got to remember. He's our heavenly father. And Jesus talks about that in Matthew 6, uh, verse 9. And then chapter 7, 7 through 11, that whole passage through there is really good, but those pieces in particular. He helps us remember that he's our father, our father who is in heaven. We're talking to God. Kids, he's your heavenly father. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior, you've got an earthly dad here, but you also have a heavenly father who loves you. And Jesus goes on to talk about how, in chapter 7, he talks about how if your earthly dads know how to give you the good things that you need, if you come up to your dad and say, Dad, I'd like a loaf of bread, they're going to give you bread. They're not going to give you a stone. Or if you say, Dad, I'd love to have some fish to eat, he's not going to give you a snake. If your earthly dad knows how to give you good things, how much more so does your heavenly Father know how to give you good things? Alistair Begg, in his book Pray Big, says this, You can meet people who will talk about God in an intellectual way or a distant way or a business-like way, but it is distinctly Christian to speak of God as a father and to therefore pray to God as a father. But how can you be praying with thanksgiving, watching with thanksgiving for that answer? How can you pray that way? It feels a little presumptuous, doesn't it? To pray watching for the answer to your prayer just exactly as you prayed it. It might feel a little presumptuous feeling, how can I pray that to God and expect that he's going to answer my prayer? Well, Psalm 37, 4 is helpful for us as we think about this. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So there's kind of like a part one and a part two to this verse. So we start in part one, delight yourself in the Lord. That's the first place you need to start before any uh, prayer plan, any prayer journaling, any prayer chart, whatever it is, this ought to be where you start. You ought to start with delighting yourself first in the Lord, remembering who he is, being thankful for his majesty, his grace, his mercy, his holiness. Delight yourself in the Lord. You can't go wrong in anything if that's where you start. Delighting yourself in the Lord. Remembering who he is as your heavenly father. Delight in the Lord. And when you're delighting in the Lord, you're loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're delighting in him. Then you can pray, and it says he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, why does he give you the desires of your heart? Because in your delighting in God and delighting in the character and nature of who he is and the reality of who God the Father is, your heart's desire changes. Our heart's desire isn't the same as it was before. As we delight in God and we, we get a greater, more clear picture of who he is, that changes us. And then our desires become God's desires That's how Jesus can say in John 14, 13 through 14, he says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Well, how can can he say that? Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Well, when you have a right understanding and you delight in who God the Father is and you have a right understanding of who his son is and what he's done and you let the reality of who Jesus is change your heart, change your mind, you're going to be praying things in his will. Will we always get it right? No. But he corrects us. He directs us. He answers those prayers just exactly as they should be. But as we delight in him, as we let the reality of who Jesus Christ is change us, it's going to give us the desires of our heart because our desires have changed. They're not the same as what they were. They're not self-centered and self-focused anymore. They're delighting in him. We're letting him shape us. We're letting him guide us. We're praying not that man's will be done in heaven, but that God's will be done on earth. And when we're praying that God's will and his plan be done on earth, you know that's going to happen. There's no stopping God's plan. There's no changing that. There's no shifting that. If that's God's plan, it's going to happen. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. So that's how to pray. Paul gives them a good blueprint, and he set a good example for them of this is how you pray. But he's also going to tell them what to be praying for. So what should they pray for? Here's what to pray. In this case, in this specific instance, here's what to pray. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Almost a half century ago, Sacramento obstetrician named Jim Affleck delivered an infant named Robert. Now that baby has grown into a doctor himself, and he performed a successful heart surgery on Dr. Affleck. Dr. Robert Kincaid was 45 at the time of this illustration. He replaced Affleck's aortic valve, and now the retired obstetrician at 83 feels like a new person, he says. Affleck didn't remember Kincaid, who now works at the hospital where he was born. After all, the doctor delivered thousands of babies. And as an obstetrician, your patient is a mother, he notes. You just hand the baby off to the pediatrician and you never see the baby again. But Kincaid, knowing Affleck had been an obstetrician at the hospital, checked out his birth certificate, which featured Affleck's signature. Kincaid also got confirmation from his mom. And when Affleck came for a checkup, the two were able to discuss their ties. We've stayed in touch, says Dr. Affleck, who's glad the operation went well. We didn't have to come full circle on this delivery death thing, he jokes. Kincaid's take? It's great to help Affleck out because he really helped me out 45 years ago. So here you go. You have this doctor making sure that this little baby is born healthy and well and has life. And then 45 years later, you have this baby. who's now grown up to be a 45-year-old man and a heart doctor, able to make sure that Dr. Affleck, who's 83, is able to continue with a good, healthy life. It's fun to see that progression and where, where where that happened. Paul's doing something similar here, though. He's done all this work in praying for them. He's done all this work in caring for this young church, this Colossian church. He says, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn to be praying for us. Pray for us. Because Paul's writing this, and he's in prison. Paul's there in prison, has some very real needs. Prisons at that time in the Roman world were known for several different things. They were known for being very dark, Very dirty, often underground, poor ventilation, way overcrowded, known for being violent, lots of abuse that would have happened. And God's already answered Paul's prayers in some pretty remarkable ways. We find out in Acts chapter 28 that Paul is in prison, but he's not so much in a prison. He's more under house arrest. He has a guard that's with him. He's chained to that guard, but he has a home. He has a dwelling where he is. There's enough room for people to be able to come and to entertain a crowd. We find that at the end of the book of Acts. Uh, He's got enough room for people to come join him in his writing, Uh, but he does have real needs. He has needs for food. Uh, He doesn't have any way to earn an income, so he needs people to provide for his daily needs. But as he's asking them to pray, he doesn't ask them to pray for the things we might think he would ask for. He doesn't ask for a softer bed. He doesn't ask for release from prison. He doesn't ask for better food. He asks for two things specifically. He asks for an open door for the gospel, and that he might preach the gospel clearly. Two things, an open door for the gospel, an open door for the word, and that he might preach the gospel clearly. So he's praying for an open door. He knows that God needs to open that door for ministry, He knows that this is God's work. It's God's doing. He's not going to go kicking down any doors. He's not going to be tipping that first domino over and watching the rest fall. He can't do anything. He's stuck in prison. There's nothing Paul can do here. He has to entirely wait for God to work, entirely has to wait for the Holy Spirit to move. He can't just say, well, okay, God didn't open a door, so we're going to open a window. You ever heard somebody say that or say, all right, the door's not open, so we're going to kick the door down you got to wait for God to open those doors. You can't just go kicking down the door. Paul, of course, he's in prison. He can't do a whole lot of door kicking down. And he can't just throw open a window. He knows that all of his ministry entirely depends on the Holy Spirit working and the Holy Spirit moving. He has to wait for God to move. He has to wait for God to open those doors. And that's hard. Waiting for doors in ministry to open can be hard. It can be long. It can be frustrating. And as one of your pastors, and I know Pastor Mark will say the same thing, we'd love to see some doors opening, different doors opening, ministry opportunities going, but we have to wait and we have to pray because we've realized we don't often have all the resources we want to have to make something happen. We might be praying, God, we really want to see this ministry get started, but we don't have all the finances to get the materials for it or all the curriculum for it. We might really want to see something else thriving, another ministry thriving, but the reality is is we only have so many people. And you guys are working really, really hard, doing a lot of things. People get tired. There's only so much we can do. We might think we want more open doors in the community. We want to be able to reach Gorham better. But there's only so much we can do. There's only so much that we can do on our own. And our natural inclination, my natural inclination, is to say, okay, what do I need to do to make this work? What do I need to do to see this be successful? What plan can I put in place to see this ministry thriving? When really that's the wrong question. When I'm trying to ask what can I do to make this work, then I ought to just assume right at the beginning it's not going to work either the way I wanted it to or it's not going to work at all. Because this is God's work. This is his ministry. When I or Pastor Mark or any of the elders are asking the question, what can we do to make this work? That's the wrong place to start. We ought to be asking the question, God, what would you have us to do? And what can we do according to your will to see this church thrive, to see this ministry thrive, to see our needs met? What can we do to fall in line with what you're doing, God? That's Mark's heart. That's my heart. That's the elder's heart for this church, is that we fall in line with the open doors that God opens. We follow where he's leading and where he's guiding. One of my big prayers for myself and then for each of us is that as we're going, we don't don't do one of two things. We don't fall behind God in what he's doing. Because often that can happen. We have this picture in our heads of this is what God's doing. So this is what this ministry is going to look like. And here's what we're going to do. And here's where this is going to go. And it starts to get shaped differently than what we were thinking. It starts to look different than how we planned. And we fall behind God because he's moving. He's shaping things. He's directing things. And we're like, wait, God, that doesn't look anything like what I thought it was going to. And we fall behind where he's moving. We have to watch for that open door. And don't fall behind where God's going. Don't fall behind where he's leading. At the same time, what I end up doing most often is trying to rush ahead of God and saying, God, it's not going quick enough. we got to keep going. And trying to rush ahead and make something happen when I need to slow down and wait and watch for God opening those doors. I can kick as hard as I want on any door, and all I'm going to do is wear myself out waiting for God to open it. So you got to wait for God to open those doors. Paul's praying for those open doors. Pray with me. Pray with us. For open doors. We'd ask the same thing here at Galilee as pastors and as elders and leaders. Pray for us that we might see those open doors. We need to see those doors opening. And Paul's praying that he might be able to see those doors open for the word. That he might proclaim the mystery of Christ. The mystery of the gospel. So what is this mystery of Christ? It first shows up in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Says this, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to its saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that's the mystery. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Who's Paul writing to here in Colossae? Primarily, these are Gentiles. These are Gentile believers who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the mystery. Christ in you. Salvation. Up until Jesus Christ, there was no way for those Gentiles, apart from becoming a Jew, converting to Judaism, there was no way for them to get to God according to the temple system. The temple system excluded them from the presence of God. The whole temple structure, the curtain that was between the Holy of Holies, they couldn't get to God. They were excluded as Gentiles. But because of the work of Christ, they're no longer excluded. They can be a part of the family of God. That curtain that was between them and the Holy of Holies was torn in two. They can now boldly go to the presence of God. They can call him their heavenly father. They're grafted into the vine because of the work of Jesus Christ. They're not separated anymore by the temple system. Now they can boldly go into the presence of God. That was a mystery. In the Old Testament, they didn't understand that this was going to happen. It was foreshadowed. It was prophesied. But they didn't understand it. And as we come to the New Testament, we see that mystery no longer being a mystery as it's revealed through Jesus Christ. This mystery hidden for ages, now revealed in Jesus. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Paul's wanting to share that message. He's praying for an open door that he might share that message. But he says, this is exactly why I ended up in prison. He got, he, he was put in prison just exactly for sharing this mystery. This mystery that, as the Gnostic teachers of the day would have used the word mystery, it would have been a word that describes something hidden. Couldn't understand it. It was hidden from the general population. You had to know the right lingo, be with the right crowd, be with the right people to understand this hidden knowledge. Paul's using it as saying, it wasn't known before, but it's known now. It's known through Jesus. This hidden mystery is no longer a mystery. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the Jews weren't okay with that idea. And that's exactly why Paul ended up in prison in the first place. If you look at Acts chapter 21 and you go through chapter 22, it's exactly this message that put Paul in jail. It's because he was there in Jerusalem. We don't have time to read the whole thing, but you can read it for yourself. So there's your homework for this morning or this afternoon. Uh, go and read that story in starting in Acts chapter 21. He goes to Jerusalem. He brings with him a Gentile. He's there in Jerusalem for several days and the Jews see him with a Gentile and assume then that he's brought that Gentile into the temple, which was a big no-no. So there he is in the temple, they confront him on it, they take him outside of the temple and they start to beat him to death. They think he's done something wrong, so they're just going to get rid of Paul their own way and they're going to beat him to death. Well, thankfully for Paul, the Roman soldiers who are ruling that that part of the world have a law that says you can't riot. So they're rioting. So the Roman soldiers come in and they rescue Paul, who they assume has done something horrible, so they're going to take him away in chains and beat him and and, uh, interrogate him and find out what he was doing. Uh, But Paul stops them before they carry him off. He says, I'd like to talk to the crowd. So he speaks to the crowd in Hebrew, and that calms everybody right down, goes dead silent. And he starts to explain who he is and what God has done in his life, how he's been changed because of Jesus Christ, and what happened to him on the road to Damascus, and how God called him, how Jesus called him and said, you're going to go reach the Gentiles, And as he says that word, Gentiles, it erupts again. It sets it off. And all the people start rioting, calling for his death. So those Roman soldiers, they pick him up. They carry him off to jail for his own safety, more than anything. And they're just getting ready to beat him, to interrogate him and find out why this whole thing has been going on. And he says, I'm a Roman citizen. So they back right off. They weren't allowed to beat a Roman citizen without a trial. So they back right off and he starts to explain what was going on. As this ball gets rolling, you can read the rest of the story, this incredible journey then that Paul goes on through being placed in prison for just proclaiming this mystery, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. It starts that ball rolling to the point where he ends up in jail in Rome and there are members of of Nero's household who gets saved because of Paul being in prison and being exactly where he is. He's saying, I want those doors open again. I want to go proclaim that mystery. It's why I'm here in prison, but I'm praying for more open doors for the word that I'm go do just exactly what I've done already. And he's praying for that. He's praying specifically for that, but then he also prays the second thing, or asks them to be praying, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He's wanting to make a clear presentation of the gospel. That's a total opposite of what the Gnostic teachers of the day would have been saying. They would have made it a mystery, something hidden, something you had to know the secret code. You had to know the secret, the right thing to say, the right thing to do, know the right people. Then maybe you can be enlightened and know what the true truth is. Paul wants a clear presentation of the gospel, a simple presentation of the gospel. He says that's how he ought to speak, speaking to listening ears and starving hearts. Paul's already seen this in the life of the Colossian Church, a simple presentation of the gospel. He talks about this at the beginning of uh, the beginning of the letter. In chapter 1: 24 through29, he talks about the gospel that has come to them, how they've responded to the gospel, and how that gospel has seen great fruit be grown in their lives, produced in their lives, and then it's going into all the world producing fruit, a simple presentation of the gospel. They heard that simple presentation, this young church, and they responded. And their hearts and their lives were changed because of it. How many gospel tools are there out there? There's a lot of gospel tools you can use. This is one of them that I used for years in CEF as a staff member. I used that for 10 years as a staff member. But as a student, I learned that long long before that. This is the wordless book. It's called the wordless book because it's literally a wordless book. There are no words in this, just colors. And those five colors, including the cover, help you to be able to make a clear, simple presentation of the gospel. We're taught, or we were taught, how to use this in such a way that even a little child can understand their need for Jesus Christ as their Savior. Each of those colors representing a different truth about who God is about who man is, about who Jesus is, about the fact that our sin needs to be punished, but Jesus Christ took the punishment for our sin on the cross, rose again three days later, and because of the work that he's done, you and I can have our sins forgiven. There's a verse that would go with each of these different pages or a couple of verses. Simple, clear presentation of the gospel only takes a couple of minutes. But you know what, I think sometimes we overcomplicate the gospel. I think we overcomplicate evangelism. We want to make it something really complex, something really deep, something that's very convincing. So we feel like we've got to make it something it's not. We feel like it's got to be uh, something, uh, something ornate, something huge, something, something overly complex. And you might think to yourself, I can't do that. I, I, apologetics. I don't even fully know what that word means. How am I supposed to explain the gospel? I don't know all these good arguments. I can't remember verses. How can, I, how can I share the gospel clearly with somebody? Sometimes I think we make the gospel look like that. It's all complex. Uh, on Tuesday, I had Mark Williams and Steve Tinsley over at my house, because I needed some help rewiring something in my kitchen. Uh, I had already done some rewiring in my kitchen before. I had two different sets of lights that I would rewired. They worked great, so I thought, this won't be a problem. I'll get them put in. I watched the YouTube video, so I was all set. So I thought, you know, I'm going to get them up in the ceiling. I'll hook them up to the wiring that was already there. I, I did everything I thought I needed to do. I turned on, hit the breaker, went back upstairs, and look, the lights are all on. I thought, perfect, they're working great. I went to hit the light switch, and the the tripped the breaker. So I went back down. I worked on as much as I could, couldn't get it. So eventually, I talked to Mark, and then he talked to Steve, and they came over to help me work on it. And I figured, they're going to look at this thing, and it's going to be like that. They're going to get it all set. I'm going to have done something silly, and they're going to say, oh, you just did this. Now it's going to work great. I think that's what they were expecting, too. And as they got there and started working on it, two hours later, they were still trying to think through, well, maybe it's this, and what if we try that? I think maybe that's what the inside of my walls look like. I don't know. We haven't broken the wall down yet. There's a plan for that. Um, but I think I think it looks like that. It was way overly complicated. I think I think we do that to the gospel. We way overcomplicate a presentation of the gospel when in reality it ought to be something simple, just an easy just an easy thing. That's what I was hoping was in my walls. It's not what was in my walls. A simple, clear presentation of the gospel doesn't have to be complicated. We should be praying the same thing that Paul's praying for, asking them to pray for, that he might make it clear which is how he ought to speak. Not complicated like that, simple like that. Clear presentation of here's who I was before Christ. Here's what someone shared with me. Here's who God is. Here's who I came to understand that I was. I was a sinner in need of a savior. That's who Jesus is. And even though I'm a sinner, he's a great savior. And he took my place, the punishment that I deserved, and died on that cross and fully paid the penalty for my sin, totally appeased the wrath of God in his sacrifice, and then came back to life again, made the way that I might call upon the name of the Lord and I might be saved. Just a simple, clear presentation of the gospel. And then you watch and see what God does with that. That's what Paul's praying for. He's not asking to be over-the-top flowery. He says, I could have come to you in wisdom as he's talking to this Corinthian church, could have come to you in power, but I didn't. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. A simple presentation of the gospel. Two things that Paul's praying for. He's praying for open doors that he might proclaim the mystery of Christ, that truth of Christ in you, the hope of glory, and that when that door is open, he might walk through that boldly, and he might be able to share a simple presentation of the gospel. That's what we're praying for here at Galilee, too. And you can pray that for us. Kids, this is where you can be a really, really big help in this church. You have a big part to play in that you can be praying for this along with the adults. You don't have to grow up to be an adult to be praying along with us, that we might have open doors for the gospel to proclaim Christ, and that we might be able to do that faithfully, to do that clearly. That starts right now. You don't have to have gray hair or no hair to be able to start praying those things. You can start right now. You're a part of this church. You have a very important part to be playing. So be praying for us, for myself, for Pastor Mark, for the elders, as we seek to lead this church well. You can be praying consistently, steadfastly, be praying faithfully, be praying expectantly for us then that we might look for those open doors, we might lead this church well through those open doors to proclaim the gospel here in Gorham and beyond, and that then we might proclaim that message of salvation, that clear presentation of the gospel, simply and clearly. Be praying for us, just as Paul's asking for prayer for that. He set this great pattern for them. It's a great pattern for us as well. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word Thank you for good patterns to follow. I like patterns, Lord. I like trails to follow. Rather than having to forge ahead and figure this out on our own, you gave it to us clearly and plainly. We just have to continue to follow where you lead. I thank you for the pattern that Paul set for us. We're to be praying faithfully, steadfastly, struggling constantly in our prayers for one another, but then that you might lead us and we might go forward faithfully, boldly, Oh, through those open doors that you open, Lord, not that we're trying to push doors open or make things happen, but that we go faithfully and, and uh, boldly through the doors that you've, you've opened for us and that then we might share that gospel clearly, plainly, simply, and we might see lives changed. I thank you that you do answer our prayers, Lord. When we delight in you, you give us the desires of our hearts. So I pray we might delight in you and you might reshape our desires. In Jesus' name, amen.